0: Deep down inside, I like to be tricked, said no one ever. Yet sometimes it happens, and nothing is worse than that. Some of us have friends who are tricked all the time. It's frustrating to watch them run from one conspiracy or get-rich scheme to the next, or to see them simply go down a rabbit hole of misinformation. What's lacking here is a better way to make decisions and not get tricked. Stay tuned, and we'll discuss. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work, And beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information,
1: please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Oh man, I am so pumped about this episode.
0: Are you going to trick me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: I'm just kidding. I'm not pumped about this episode at all. (laughs)
0: No.
1: (laughs) No, here's the thing. As I watch this all the time, this has been one of my greatest frustrations since I was a kid all the way up till now. And I remember the first time I was tricked, like really, really tricked. I had spent a lot of money. Now, this was before super soaker water guns. You know, they have a huge cannon on it and maybe some of the modern. I don't know where modern water gun technology is right now. I'm not really plugged into that. But I remember I saved up all this money for this water gun because it said it shot a hundred feet. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I could shoot a teenager in the face and have <laughs> enough time to get away. You know, a hundred feet's a lot. You know, I got out the tape measure and like marked it out on the lawn. I'm like, oh man, I was fantasizing. I'm like, from here to that tree, how many? And then I bought it. I bought this water gun. I filled it up and like, man, was this like a hundred feet off the Empire State Building with a strong tailwind? <laughs> I was devastated. <laughs> like, this is baloney you know (laughs) think of the expletive that would run through a little kid's head i had those and i'd saved up all this money and i was hacked off i had been tricked
0: that's right yeah and so today we're going to talk about what we call the disinformation and misinformation landscape we're going to talk about some of those common practices that trick people And we'll talk about some implications for people, leaders, and organizations with regard to this really important topic. So let's start with that first piece, the disinformation and misinformation landscape. And I think it's important to make a distinction between those two different terms. So when we say disinformation, that's more of propaganda, right? That's something that's wrong on purpose, something that's put out there. This is the the literal fake news, perhaps. Misinformation is information that's just wrong, and it's perhaps wrong unintentionally, but it's just wrong nonetheless. Uh, And these two types of wrong information, disinformation and misinformation, can be very problematic, and certainly there's a lot of it out there. Yeah, and so it's not just like puffery from
1: advertising. There's been so much stinking thinking that has impacted my life, and during this COVID Thing. And, you know, a lot of people have some nuanced views about COVID that they won't share with their peer group. Maybe they're like, oh, someone will judge me. Someone might think I'm not thinking right. And a lot of people, they spend a lot of their internal thought lives not exposing how they think to the broader world because maybe, maybe they did think some really stupid stuff at some point. Mm. And we might get laughed at. So a lot of people don't live a very public thought life so they can hone and improve the way that they think. And so they're not tricked. And so they can, you know, assess certain things. You know, they just don't do that. But the goal for this episode, at least for me, Ben, is that we can talk about those items and leave you guys with a way in which you can deal with the world around you and not feel buffeted by a bunch of complexity and stuff you don't understand and you don't know how to navigate it. You know, for some people you wake up in the morning And it's frightening to go outside because all this stuff happens and you don't know why. Why is this going on? What, What should I do? I don't know what to do.
0: And I think the big point here is that making our world a better place depends upon people, many people, improving the way that we think about things. And that's going to be an ongoing challenge throughout civilization. But it's something that we desperately need if we're going to deal with the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity of modern life. We all have experiences being tricked. It might have been with a water gun when you were a kid, Uh, but we also have perhaps business relationships that turn sour. Maybe one side is kind of using the other. Uh, We've maybe had romantic relationships that went awry, and we felt betrayed or tricked. We all have those experiences, and they can leave us Being rather wary and and some of that's good. Some of that wariness is good I think none of us like that feeling of being tricked though Yeah, and here's another one I hear well
1: your side says this and my side says that You know or well, there's just so much out there. So I'm just gonna go with the side. I want Mm
0: -hmm. Right
1: they they use these things of the you know, well, it's complex out there or there's a lot of misinformation scientists change their mind and they use all of these reasons as an excuse to justify doing what they want to do anyway. And I'm telling you, today, there's a better way forward than doing what you want anyway, because sometimes what we want, like for me, that might be like, let's eat all the muffins out of the tens before my kids wake up for breakfast and just give them <laughs> stale cereal instead. Right. Sometimes we know what we wants not the best way. But when you lack a way to navigate all that stuff, what, are you, what else are you going to do? You know, you're going to default to that easy thing. So we're going to give you a system to navigate so you can feel empowered and actually improve your thinking, less stinking thinking.
0: Sure, sure. And, you know, when people trick others, uh, we go to a lot of uh, effort to self-justify what we're doing, right? Or when we're being tricked, Um, you know, we, we oftentimes just justify selfish behavior. We trick ourselves into thinking we're doing the right thing or that we did the right thing. We go through great lengths to preserve, you know, what we call our preferred sense of self to kind of keep ourselves feeling good about ourselves. And, you know, we don't, no one wants to feel incompetent. No one wants to be duped. Uh, People want to be regarded with esteem by their peers. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of that goes into, you know, this, this whole thing where we sometimes... Uh, can get tricked by things. And and then we, you know, we really, um, a lot of people, I would say, don't have kind of a good way to navigate out of that. And that's the problem. So that's something we're going to talk about here today. Yeah.
1: And I think the reasons people trick people are kind of obvious. They want our hard-earned sure. money. You're like, whatever, man, you just want my cash. Go away. Right. Hmm. They want clicks to generate income. Like pretty much every YouTube video is like, You know, running on the treadmill won't get you the abs you want. Guess what I ate for dinner? Nope, it wasn't a salad. It was a whole large pizza. And you're, you know, they're feeding into these things because they want to draw you in. And the reason why those things work is they play with our psyche. Like our brains evolve to get along, to do stuff collaboratively, a whole bunch of stuff that relies on not tricking everybody but you get a large enough society, you could get some rascals in the mix that can really spoil the pudding.
0: Sure, sure. You know, sometimes people will trick others just to try to get notoriety or try to get popularity as well. And, you know, another reason why, you know, I think there is a a reason for uh, distrust, why people oftentimes um, maybe don't trust authority Is because we've all worked for horrible companies. We've all had horrible bosses here and there. And so, you know, you compound that over a career or a handful of years or decades. And, you know, you can't necessarily blame someone for not trusting people in authority if all the people in authority have betrayed them along the way, right? We've talked about this in previous episodes where, you know, we say that if you want to restore people's faith in institutions, Well, you know, being a good leader and a good manager, one of character and integrity, is a good place to start. You see that there's a confused moral landscape
1: here, because one of the things is if you want less tricking to go on in the world, then don't be a trickster yourself. Sure. Right. But then some of the times when people select their politicians, they want to send a warrior or a trickster up to Washington. I don't care what you do as long as you bring more bacon home for my state. Versus something like, hey, I really want you guys to get in there and jointly work with experts and come up with the best solution for all of us. And so you can see, you know, so one of the things we want to do is we want to help make people immune to being tricked. Right. But we also want to encourage people to please don't be tricksters yourself. (laughs) And there's people that do this a lot and they're called sociopaths right? Don't be that kind of psycho that, that uses this to keep yourself from getting tricked, but goes on and wreaks
0: havoc in the culture. Right. And a lot of this, you know, this whole idea of not getting tricked, a lot of this stems from what I think of as the double-edged sword of the information age. So, you know, in the recent decades, obviously with the advent of the internet and other types of technologies, we have an unprecedented uh, access to uh, information as well as there's being very low barriers to having very publicly available information, right? So anybody can put out information and have it accessible worldwide. And if you have uh, you know, the, the right, maybe uh, you know, social media game or other types of combinations of, of things that become popular, right? If you can go viral, well, it doesn't matter who you are, you can have a very, very large audience. And this results in an environment in which we have so much information that's available uh, that it can be confusing for anyone to try to navigate. You know, if you're just taking, you know, not all information is created equal though, right? So you have some information out there that is misinformation, it's just wrong. You have some that's disinformation, information that's intentionally wrong. And then there probably is some information that actually is good information that that provides some good evidence for or against something. And that's just something that we've got to deal with more and more as we progress in the knowledge economy, in the information age. Uh, and it's something I think we have to get better at. We have to teach our kids how to do this better. Um, we have to wrestle with this double-edged sword. This it It is a double-edged sword. And just to let you know how
1: prevalent this is, you know, two thirds of the vaccine misinformation come from twelve people. Amazing, right? And so, and we have this stuff where people, if they hear something often enough, but when these people have bots and content creators, and they're making millions, I think one of them, that he's out at near my old stomping grounds in Nashville. You know, he's declared his net worth is over a hundred million dollars on some tax form or something. What? And, and so and this is a guy, a guy that's making we're talking gobs of money. And now this is different than a conspiracy because this is not some, you know, giant secret cobble of dark forces that own everything. No, this is a dude that started in his house and just started playing misinformation games on the Internet, made some money paid some people to do. There's no giant organization behind them. And you know what else is it behind them? Like almost all the scientists (laughs) <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. They're, they're not behind
0: them. I'll, yeah. Just to clarify that. So, and listen,
1: scientists fight so much with each other, they couldn't
0: form a cobble if they wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. So the, one of the fundamental problems here, and we're going to put a bunch of stuff in this show notes. So If you're interested in digging into this more in detail, please check that out. But one fundamental problem is just the way that our minds work. When we receive some mis- misinformation particularly if it's something that we kind of already agreed with, right? So we have a preconceived notion, we hear something, and we're like, yes, that, that makes a lot of sense, that, that explains a lot for me, and it was said really well, and I can easily digest that. Uh, it is very difficult to get that person to not believe it and to not act on it, right? Even if that misinformation is corrected, even if the person has presented contrary evidence to that misinformation, the person is it's hard it's likely that they'll continue to persist with whatever the misinformation was that they uh, latched onto it's It's a very tricky thing yeah, so if I put out misinformation like I
1: saw Ben Barron doing his nightly run at two a m in the nude downtown Hudson Ohio <laughs> first, you won't be able to get that disgusting image out of your head right <laughs> second of all, it would be so. Hard to get that stuff in. I remember when I was a little kid in church, they said lies are like, because they're trying to say, you know, be careful, little ones, what you say, Mm -hmm. right? Which is, that's an important lesson for all of us. Be careful what you say is when you say something and you think it might be true, but you don't know, it's like a down pillow and all the feathers going flying on the highway. It is impossible to go gather all those feathers with the cars flying back and forth and put it back in the stuff it's the same thing with disinformation now the thing is is bad actors right sometimes people in the media sometimes politicians sometimes people that want to make a bunch of money out of their parents basement and then get a hundred million bucks right whatever right they know that so even if they get censured or some oh oh i'm sorry i messed that up they know because the power the fundamental problem this is a quote by Anderson in the journal of personality and social psychology that came out in 1980. Here's the quote from it. The fundamental problem with misinformation is that once people have heard it, they tend to believe and act on it even after it's corrected. So a tactics like, Hey, I can get that out. Maybe I pay a thousand dollar fine. Maybe I issue a public apology, but it doesn't matter because it's an earworm and it's out there and it's not going to stop.
0: Yeah. it's It's such a tricky problem. And you know, there, there's some great research on this. One um, piece of research that we came across that, that's helpful here comes from Norbert Schwartz, who uh, um, is from the University of Southern California, I believe. And he identified five criteria that people use to decide whether information is true. So the first one is compatibility with other known information. So we compare a piece of information with other things that we know. Now, one problem here is that we oftentimes have confirmation bias as well, which means that we're looking for things that already conform to what we already believe, right? So we look at look for things that maybe look f- that are compatible with other information. Uh, we look at the credibility of the source. that's one thing. that's good. Uh, whether others believe it, right? So it matters, perhaps who is in your your echo chamber, your milieu of people socially whether the information is internally consistent, and whether there is supporting evidence. So those are five things that people will use to decide whether information is true. And they aren't necessarily bad things, right? These can be very good things. Um, but one thing that he also found is that you know his studies also show that people are more likely to accept misinformation as fact if it's easy to hear or read. If it's easy to hear or read. If, you, if, if it's just digestible easily, it's more likely to be accepted.
1: This is, and let's go through some of those here in a minute, but what happens is, right? Your brain has so much to do. Oh my gosh. I had a fight with my kid. I hope they're going to have a good day at school today. Oh, what am I going to make for dinner? I don't even have time. I'm going to have to order pizza again. I'm such a bad parent because I feed my you know, kid garbage because I'm so busy, right? All that stuff's going on, right? You're just trying to pray just to make it through the day, right? And then you get to something like, oh, shoot, COVID-19. Oh, man, I got to decide some stuff here. <laughs> and, it, and it's complex, right? It is not on your platter, especially if you're a parent or somebody, if you're a full-time worker, you know, unless you're just bored and retired and causing problems at your local school board meeting, you know, that kind of person, you know, <laughs> you have a full plate. And then on top of that, some complexity comes and bites you, and you got to make a decision. Well, you might try to like, okay, let's try to look at this. Well, let's be honest. A lot of people just look at one or two articles. Maybe they don't even read them. Maybe they just look at a couple headlines or text a buddy. Hey, what do you think about this? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, they know that they don't have enough time, so they just go with what's easy to hear or read. That's totally understandable. But the thing you need to do, and we'll get to this later on, like, what what you're going to do about it, is you can't go for that psychological shortcut. Now, let's go back here and show the problem with these five. Compatibility with other known information. There's this thing called illusion of explanatory depth. That's where you think, like, hey, Ben, do you know how a toilet works? Yeah. okay, explain it to me. Well, you know, you push the handle and it goes down. No, but what forces are involved? What is involved in better toilet design? Mm -hmm. Like you don't know all that detailed stuff. You just know I press the button and it happens. So you think you understand the information and you'll have a base level of information. And if it's compatible with it, you're like, okay, that makes sense. But you gotta stop and ask yourself, do I really know the information around this topic? And you see it in the memes where they say, and just like that, everyone went from vaccine experts to foreign policy experts, right? They'll have like the Forrest <laughs> Gump meme, right? So, and that's kind of what they're hinting at here. Now, credibility of the source. Now, the problem is, is some people view sources that should not be credible at all yeah. as credible.
0: Well, and sometimes it's because the sources themselves are stepping out of their lanes, right? So sometimes you'll have people who maybe have a just a wealth of expertise and knowledge in one area, who, by for various reasons, start to opine in other areas that are outside of their area of expertise. And we have and, a word for that. What is that yeah, word? <laughs> ultra crepidarianism. So you know, when when people engage in that practice of ultra crepidarianism, uh, they are stepping outside of their uh, lane of expertise, and we're treating them like experts in everything, right? So you know, I have a PhD and I teach in a business school, but. That doesn't mean I'm an expert on everything in business. No, it means I have some really deep knowledge and expertise in one area. But if you want to talk to me about, you know, uh, finance, or you want to talk to me about, you know, various marketing techniques, go talk to those professors, right? Um, so that that's when it comes to credibility of the source, you have to just because someone has a a PhD or an MD doesn't necessarily mean that they're credible in whatever they're talking about. You got to make sure that it's in their specialty and it's where they have a track record of expertise. Uh, So, you know, that can be another minefield that I think um, people have to navigate. Yeah. I'm thinking of that one video, Ben, that
1: was brought to our attention where a doctor gets up before a school board and says, hi, I'm a doctor and infectious disease and all this stuff. And then goes through, you know, disease wells and animals and all this stuff. And And I'm like, oh, snap. You know, I know now I've worked enough with that, with public health departments and other stuff to know that some of that stuff wasn't false. But I'm like, oh, my gosh, this guy sounds totally credible. And Mm -hmm. he did go through medical school and all that. But when you go Google him, you find out he does not an infectious disease expert. Right. And he like he flat out lied and used big jargon that he picked up in medical school to deceive people. So credibility of the source can be challenging.
0: Sure. And it's not just about who is speaking the most confidently about something, right? Don't confuse confident speaking and slick presentation with credibility. That I mean that's a tricky thing. So that's that's kind of another uh, area that we have to be careful about, but uh you know, there's whether others believe it. And I mentioned when I went through these quickly, I said, you know, it also depends on who your others are. And I think that's where we need to consider our, our networks of people. Right. And, you know, one problem, one of the many problems with social media, especially Facebook is it can start to create based upon algorithms, you know, where you are commenting and liking and interacting with people who are similar to you. And so you start to build these, what we call an echo chamber, where you're only hearing those things that kind of you agree with anyway. And if that's happening then, you know, and, and some people in that group start to latch on to misinformation or disinformation, then it's going to very easily become a vicious cycle within that echo chamber. And, you know, that that's, it's it's going to spread that way. If, if those are the only people that you um, are looking to to see if they agree or if they like something. Yeah.
1: And we see this in tough, toxic cultures that we're turning around. A lot of people believe certain things about interpersonal behavior, cultural norms and, you know, a lot of people don't interact with academics or legitimate thought leaders on LinkedIn. All you have to do is type. I'm a thought leader.
0: <laughs> I, you can and make that it, part of your title.
1: I, <laughs> I guess that's well, it said it on LinkedIn. It's got to be typed it in himself. Right. And, <laughs> and like, OK, you're a thought leader. Well, what are you doing that's innovative? Do you have an innovative business model? Have you published something in a academic press? Not, you know, Joe Night Shift publishing quarterly, you know, like (laughs) most people haven't been around real thought leaders in their field. Right. And that's just not part of their everyday. That doesn't mean everything. But when you're looking for real answers to navigate complexity. Your friends believing this is that's like the worst thing you could do. So like. Norbert Schwartz identified how people do it. What I'm saying is how people do it's broke, right? Right. Whether others believe it doesn't make, you know, Galileo. Nobody believed him. Matter of fact, they chased him around for years trying to kill the guy for saying that the earth isn't the center of the universe. (laughs) The sun is, right? So that is not a good way. Now, another piece. Now, this one's actually pretty good. Whether the information is internally consistent.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So looking at whether or not a piece of information is self-contradictory or whether or not it, it makes sense and, and has, you know, some uh, some internal consistency there. I think that's a that's a good one, um, because if something is self-contradictory, uh, then it then probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, but, but it's wow. right. That's ripe for sure. interdiction. It's easy to cast doubt on something here. Yeah. So
1: you have to go when somebody says, well. Well, the the information about the facts about COVID-19 kept changing. That was actually a feature of how science worked. At first, we thought the r ot factor was two. We had to close everything down. We didn't know a whole lot. And it's like, hey, it looks like this. Then we conducted some science and experiments and all this kind of. And then we got better information. And so we could shift. So just because things shift doesn't mean that the information isn't in, not
0: internally consistent. Like you're looking for a methodology and stuff here. Right, right. I mean, it's it's a feature of um, advancing knowledge and insight into some particular problem when people do change their minds, when more information becomes available, when there are, there's, there's more data to analyze and more information comes to light. Yeah, minds should change. And that's, that is what you saw somewhat with, um, the evolution of the COVID nineteen pandemic, and you know, it's it's incorrect to say, oh, the scientific community just got it wrong all the time. No, they were working on the best information they had and updated as they got more. Um, that's what I saw, and that's very typical in the science scientific community. Uh, the last that one, means it, it's working, yeah, guys. It, it means that it's means working, it's working. Right. <laughs> right. And the last one is whether there is supporting evidence. And we'll talk about this a little bit more, but you know, not all, all evidence is created equal. And I think that's where we need to, to think about evidence very carefully.
1: Right. So, you know, and that feeds back on the first one. Compatibility with other known information. If you're hanging out with a bunch of numbskulls that don't know anything and your information, they when we talk about them, it's an echo chamber. And so the way that people make sense, which aren't the best, but these are the ways that people do it. And then they just go on what's simple and easy to
0: hear or read. Um, Those aren't going to get you there. So another feature that we need to talk about has to do with the difference between looking at things intuitively and looking at things analytically. And what's interesting is that intuition actually can be amazing, but it's amazing in certain ways, in certain contexts people make very very good decisions using their gut feelings when they are making decisions about something in which they have a lot of expertise and experience right so you know when you have someone who has been through something very similar in the past many many times has a lot of experience they can make very quick gut gut feeling type decisions and it and it works the problem is when we rely on intuition in areas that are outside of our expertise, in areas that are unfamiliar to us, um, because then we, we really could be making false assumptions and getting ourselves into trouble. And that's where we need to have a more analytical approach where we're trying to, uh, you know, collect multiple different types of information and weigh them against each other um, to really try to, to figure out the way forward. And there's a- another piece here, Ben, and that's time. Even expert
1: thinkers, people that are dyed in the wool and all the literature and a lot of experience. So if there's somebody bleeding out on an emergency room table, it's time to go, right? And you're going to go with your training. You're going to go with your intuition because the guy's about to die, right? But when time is not of the essence, like we didn't have to decide about vaccines and COVID overnight as individuals. Well, okay, I'm just going to be safe with my family and, and decide. Experts like in a medical setting might say, hmm. I'm pretty sure it's this. I'm gonna go run a couple tests to just validate. Anytime smart people, anytime they can shift into that analytical thinking mode, are gonna go there. You know, you'll see people make an appeal to common sense. We'll just use your common sense. Experts, people that know, know that lots of times our common sense is wrong. And if we have time, why not apply a an analytical framework? It'll just validate what you do,
0: and then you'll know. Right, right. So all of this is okay. These are features of how we, how we act, uh, how you know, social interactions work to some extent, And but I think we're going to provide a, a way forward here in a little bit. One other set of reasons, though, why this is problematic, why uh, we can easily be tricked has to do with cognitive reasons, such as we are just not that great at processing complex information uh we are pretty good at focusing on one thing and and determining whether or not it's a a threat or uh something friendly and doing something about it but when we have complex threats or we have something very um kind of nuanced that we're facing we aren't that great at it we're just not really equipped for that um and part of this is that we aren't that great at perceiving risk um in particular, we don't appreciate those things that are happening infrequently, what we call a low base rate type of incident. So there are a couple different examples here. You know, ben, what's I, a low base rate? Yeah, so a low base rate is something that doesn't happen frequently, right? Awesome. we just we just don't have a whole lot of data on it. It's something that's rare. Um, so, you know, here are a couple examples. So one example is maybe not trusting vaccines in general. But at the same time, frequently engaging in things that are, are, are risky, you know, drinking alcohol, sunbathing um, or, you know, the, here's another good one. After the terrorist attacks of 9-11 in the United States, um, you know, the airlines all shut down. And then after a little while, they came back and they were available. Right. Uh, but even when they came back, people didn't use them much. There was this increase of uh, driving long distances. Um, that was pretty no- noticeable. There's there's data around this. Um, people driving instead of taking the plane because they were scared about plane safety. Now that was a very low base rate thing that happened, right? It happened with uh, three planes, right? in In the United States, um, well, actually four, right? Because you had uh, the the two in in New York City, and you had one in Virginia, and then you had one in Pennsylvania, and you know, it's still a very rare thing, (laughs) but we don't appreciate that and we decide to drive instead. And there's even estimates that people, you know, more people died in car accidents after this. Um, You know, there was an increase in that due to the fact that they're driving more. So we're just not very good at these kind of complex risk um, calculations. We don't appreciate things that don't happen that often.
1: And and here's a trick for you guys. We just tricked you right now because we made it seem as if any of the way we framed those things was a valid construct for looking at risk. I mean, I'm gonna naked sunbathe while flying and drinking alcohol, but versus, cause right, some people will look at the data and say, well, okay, there are more people died in cars than died on the plane. So that means less, you know, versus, hey, it's my right to destroy my body. It's not affecting anybody else, right? And there's a difference between individual choice and what we might decide as a good policy. So the fact that less people you could use, right, intuitively and in the way that people sits make, well, we should just ban cars and everyone should fly.
0: <laughs>
1: right? And you can't necessarily do that. And the problem with in looking at those examples is you have to have a frame, a lens to think about risk. Because as you see, there's like individual freedom, you know, group think there's, um, you know, if we just did it on live save, that means everybody flies, but that costs money. And, and people have a hard time waiting in that complexity of like, well, Fauci and those guys didn't think about the economy. And like, guys, at the CDC, there are economists that like, think about those things. Mm -hmm. And, And that's just not the case. So just wanted you to know that we're not good at processing risk and complex information. And even our example shows that.
0: Sure. Now, there are some common practices that trick people, and we're going to go through those now. Uh, One of them being just peer pressure, that social groups, the the groups that we associate with, our social network, so to speak, um, can be pretty influential in how we think about things. Uh, You know, be it on social media or in in real life, uh, we oftentimes get influenced by the people around us. Um, and, and this is one way, as we talked about earlier, that we oftentimes make decisions. Yeah. And it's not a good way, guys. I have people... Depending you know, be- on... I think it depends upon who you're, what your social network looks like, right? If you have a group that is maybe practicing some of the things that we'll talk about in this episode uh, in terms of uh, evaluating evidence in a more judicious way, in terms of you know, exploring different sides of different topics, steel manning various arguments... Right. That could be a, a very good social network that would help you make better decisions, I would argue. Yes, absolutely. But you
1: can't decide on peer pressure when you go to those sure. excellent, awesome thinking people. You need to understand how they arrived at that. So it's like as a host of this podcast, as, you know, as a consultant, people come to me and Ben, both of us. Right. And ask us stuff. And sometimes they're like, oh, it's so complex. Just tell me what to do. And that's such a cop out in my view. It's like, listen, you need to because I want, you know, teach Amanda fish type thing. I want you to be able to make solid decisions. Now, you may need help with expertise and some of that stuff. That's fine. But you should never just believe something
0: because people told you to and pressured mm-hmm. you into it. Sure, sure. You know, another piece that can be problematic is this idea of do your own research. Right, you hear this a lot where people say, uh, you know, uh, it's a complicated topic. I encourage you to do your own research and uh, decide what's best for you. Well, first of all, I'm a researcher and <laughs> research is not just going out there and Googling around for a while. That's not that does not research make research is a, a much deeper process of of, you know, inquiry. So uh, that, that's one problem. Uh, so you, most people don't really understand what research is and how to do it. Uh, and oftentimes the research, quote unquote, that people do when they're trying to make a decision about something is pretty superficial. Um, you don't even know the right questions to ask. Um, and that's where uh, and I think it comes from a place. I'll just back up here. It, I think it comes from a place of mistrust. Like if we have if you don't trust people who are experts in a certain area, then you do feel like you need to kind of figure it out yourself. I don't blame you there. That That's that's hard. Um, but the problem is you don't even know the right questions to ask. You don't even know the right search terms to put into Google. Right. And, and so these are, we're talking about common practices that trick
1: people. So peer pressure, that's one, right? The other, do your own research. This props up your ego, like, hey, Filson, you're a smart guy. Just go research it yourself. Meanwhile, in the background, they have a thousand bots putting about a ton of disinformation out there that. That it just that's just designed to trick you. Another one is that, you know, we say peer pressure. One is the freedom, no pressure tactics. Hey, look at all this information, this. But hey, go ahead, do your own research. I think you should believe whatever you want to believe. And when you put that on top of a misinformation and disinformation landscape, man, that's where you get all the stinking thinking in the world.
0: All the stinking thinking. Uh, Yeah. And so, you know, there's uh, this other idea of, you know, the six degrees of manipulation. Um, So we came across a a really great um, lab. It's called the Cambridge Social Decision Making Lab at um, the University of Cambridge in the UK. What they suggest in this, um, uh, in terms of these six degrees of manipulation, is that people will impersonate, they'll build conspiracies, they use emotion, polarization, uh, discrediting, trolling. All these types of tactics are used to spread misinformation and disinformation and and can really be a source of the problematic stuff that we see in society and in the the information landscape. And we saw it with that video with that numbskull
1: doctor, right? He quoted himself as a fake expert. Yeah. And he wasn't even an impressive resume. This guy was like bottom of the barrel, squeaked out of med school and then just started working yeah. Selling quack remedies outside of regular hospitals. Well, right? and here's the
0: thing. He he actually mixed in to his, what he said. He mixed in some true things, <laughs> which makes it even trickier. So there are some things that, that were fine that he was saying, but then he sprinkled in some, some fairly big misnomers uh, that were problematic. So impersonation, he's
1: impersonating an expert. He was a fake expert. He used emotional language, right? And, you know, and then use a conspiracy theory about why all this stuff was happening and how nobody's really talking about it. And that was just baloney. And, you know, we do this a lot in I.T., you know, people will call, hey, this is the help desk. Yeah, I'm going to need your credentials to go ahead and get your computer fixed this afternoon. <laughs> and now people know not to do that. They're like, I know enough now. And that's our hope with this is that we will inoculate you against the jack wagonry that is everywhere Right. But when you know that people call and ask for your password, you're like, there's no way. That's not how passwords
0: work. So I hope you I hope you know that. right? Right. If someone calls you and asks you for your password, don't give it to them.
1: But social engineering is what it's called. And people are using these same techniques. Now, look at these are the typical social engineering pieces. And look how they're similar to the six degrees of manipulation, masquerading as trusted entities like familiar brands or people. You know, there's your impersonation. Right. Creating a false sense of urgency to confuse victims. You know, they try to get you to feel like, oh my gosh, the computer's going to crash. Quick, I need your password or something, right? So they try to create urgency so you don't think quickly, uh, properly. And then they take advantage of people's natural curiosity, sense of indebtedness or conditioned response to authority. We, from the time we're kids, listen to your teacher, right? Listen to your parents, So we kind of have that. We see that in all the research about peer conformity, or well, the expert asked me to go shock this person, even though the actor's like, oh, you're killing me. Go ahead and administer one more shock. You know, like you think, how could he do it? But the experts there. Yeah. Right? Yeah.
0: So you're referring to the Milgram experiments there. Right. And this is our tendency to obey authority. And the tricky thing there is that people can masquerade as authority. And we get we get easily tricked by that. So, um, yeah, definitely some some problematic things there. And our dear listeners are probably thinking, oh, my gosh, we have this disinformation and misinformation uh, landscape that's really problematic. There's all these different things that you're telling me are, are tricky about the way that we think and other ways that we get duped. What do we do to try to move forward and maybe get tricked a little bit less? You know, the title of this episode is something about not getting tricked. So let's talk about some implications for people, for leaders and organizations um, with regard to avoiding getting tricked. And I think the first thing to mention here is that you've got the power. In the end, you are a part of your own deception. So this is a positive thing. Because you have what we call agency, right? You can do things that can help you not be as easily tricked. Now, is it going to be 100% of the time? No, right? This is, this is a world of probabilities. but we, we want to increase the probability that you're not going to get tricked and decrease the probability that you're going to be tricked. Yeah, I love that.
1: In the end, you're part of your own deception. Now, Ben doesn't like it when I say it, but this is the heuristic I use for myself. I just view my brain as a jalopy. I can't- well, I, I view your brain that way too. Okay, good. So it's just mine, but that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> so my, I just view as I can't trust what's coming out unless I go through a process, right? And so one of those things, the first thing is if you have strong emotional reaction, that means the parts of your brain that are involved with rational thinking aren't engaged. And I remember right. one time, You know, I used to work in commercial real estate with this firm and stuff. And and so I know a lot about real estate. I own rental properties, that kind of thing. But there was this house in this really cool part of Nashville, Tennessee called 12th South. And Emma and I had, um, you know, we had lived there first. And then we moved out to another place. And then we were going to get a house. I really wanted to live in that cool walk. You know, the coffee shops on the corner, all that stuff. It was more money than I should pay at my financial point. But I was so enamored with that house. My brain was hijacked. I was like, oh, my gosh, it's Craftsman Bungalow style. Look at the wood accents. You know, everything was perfect. (laughs) And so but I knew that my brain was like my brain was giving me a little bit of pause, but my emotional side was like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. I can just see. I'll be in the most cool place and not be able to afford anything. Cause I'm way extended on my house payment. <laughs> so I called some buddies of mine and I'm like, guys, I'm feeling really emotional about this house. So let me just talk out the fact. And they were able to help talk me out of that emotional frenzy Yeah. Right. And get me onto the okay. And then I passed. I passed. Actually, I made an offer that would have made it a good deal for me. Low
0: them. Yeah. (laughs) And we didn't get it. (laughs) Right. Right. So that's a great example. A great example of encountering a situation in your instance here, in your example. Or I think this can also be true and useful to think about if you're encountering a piece of information, a piece of news, perhaps that really gives you a strong emotional reaction, either positive or negative. It might be something that you see about a controversial topic that you're like, yeah, preach on, you know, destroy them, right? Those, they own the libs or own the Republicans or whatever, you know, whatever. Um, It it really gives you a strong emotional reaction. Um, Or maybe it's something that you're like, ooh, that is just horrible. Um, Either way, you should know, just let that be a trigger for you and let that be your own internal mechanism for saying okay I need to slow down I need to take this apart a little bit you know piece by piece be a little bit more rational about it maybe come back to it after some time maybe talk to some other people about it and maybe just question yourself a little bit right when you're having those strong emotional reactions to a a piece of information
1: yeah just pause like mo- nobody's shooting at us i say this in you know as somebody who's been to Afghanistan every time and people are flying off the handles in these orgs we go into, I'm like, wait, guys, nobody's shooting at us right now. That's awesome. So we get to take some time to decide. All right. And one of the things you want to do is if you're in an emotional state, you need to like get out of that. You need to take a break, go on a walk, write down pros and cons, enlist and somebody that's not emotionally invested in the decision, those kinds of things to help you because your brain's hijacked emotionally. Now, after that, you wanna do something called steel manning. And Uh I see this all the time in public discourse, on Facebook, on Twitter, and conversations, in the hallways of businesses. So let's talk a, a steel man argument versus the opposite, which is a straw man argument. Now, a straw man argument might be something, Ben says, I don't like tomatoes, right? And then I go, oh my gosh, can you believe Ben hates all red fruits, including <laughs> strawberries? So yeah. I'm setting up a straw man that looks like his argument, but it's yeah. just a scarecrow and I'm beating the fire out of it and the bees so, flying uh, and, yeah. Yeah,
0: so yeah, I would say that's that's a, like an overgeneralization, which I guess you could characterize as a straw man. Another way to think about a straw man is taking the weakest form of someone's argument Oh yeah, and, totally. and attacking it and blowing it over, right? Um, and you see this very frequently um, in politics, in current events, just in everyday conversation. That's just, it, it's unfair and it's, it leads to some stinking thinking. Um, the steel man, the opposite of that is to say, okay, here's a piece of information or an argument that I don't agree with. Um, I'm going to, what would it take for me to really, what was the strongest form of this argument? You know, maybe even stronger than the author or the person who is presenting that information stronger than they even had it presented, right? You add some evidence to their side and then you can start thinking more rationally about the question. Yeah, an example of that would be Ben. So what
1: you're saying is this, is that correct? Well, I actually think maybe also this and this would make that even stronger, right? And you're like, man, I wish I could have said it as good myself. Mm-hmm. And then if you can beat the fire out of that argument, right, like, then it's first you've respected the other side, right? That's right. That, you know, we have a problem with respecting the other side. Um, you've respected the other side. You've communicated that you truly understand and maybe even have a better version of it than they had themselves and that you still disagree and that there's fatal flaws in those arguments. That is something that you can do. And so we have bias, Right. So, you know, there's certain people that publish stuff online. I'm like, man, they're always publishing garbage. But if I'm going to enter the information landscape, I need to take the best versions of their arguments and deal with those rather than just deal with my maybe prejudices
0: and cognitive biases towards that stuff. Sure. Another piece here is don't confuse confidence with accuracy. We talked about this earlier, but this is, you know, very, very tough for us because I think it's natural. When someone speaks with authority, they speak confidently, they maybe use some, sprinkle in some technical terms that sound smart about some topic that maybe we don't understand as much. It's very easy to say, wow, that person sounds really good. Um, That sounds really, you know, plausible. And it might be, but that's where you would probably want to double check, right? Uh, And try to say, am I just thinking that because this person sounds good and it was easy to understand? Or is this something uh, that, that perhaps, um, does have some validity. So, um, another piece here is the idea of evidence-based practice. So, you know, we've talked about this in some prior episodes. We had an episode with Rob Breener, uh, organizational psychologist in the UK who talks a lot about this and has written a lot about it. And I really like the way that he explains this idea of evidence-based practice, um, using evidence to make better decisions. And what he says is that we need to use evidence in a way um, that involves three things, right? We need to be, uh, we need to use evidence in a way that is conscientious, explicit, and judicious. So what he means by that is the conscientious use of evidence is we got to actually try hard. We have to exert some effort. We have to, you know, in good faith, try to find data, try to understand things um, in terms of evidence. And then be explicit about it, right? When we're going through our decision-making process, talk about the evidence, the pros, the cons, share that with other people. And then third, we need to have the judicious use of evidence, which is about realizing that not all evidence is created equally, right? Some evidence, if if there is a really, really awesome a uh, peer-reviewed study that was done very well. Now, not all not all academic studies are done well. There are there's some garbage out there, but let's say that there's one. that's Sometimes done, you really? just got to keep that tenure thing going, you know. <laughs> 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 per, perhaps for some folks, right? So, you know, there's. But it, let's let's imagine. Let's steel man this. Say there's a really great uh, academic article, really great research that's done on a topic that, sh- that suggests strongly some particular, uh, you know, conclusion, um, that type of evidence is better than someone's one-off story, <laughs> right, about something similar. Uh, they just aren't comparable, really. Um, much different sources of evidence. So that, that's something I would encourage people to to really think hard about when they're trying to evaluate When there are, let's say you are doing your own research. We talk about the kind of problematic nature of that sometimes. But let's say you are doing that. You have to remember that not all evidence is created equal.
1: Right. And since this is about people tricking you, sometimes people come to you and you're like, man, I don't know. I'm just trying to like watch some trash TV and get through my life. And they're coming to you and they want you to get pumped up or excited. You can ask them to do, okay, well, could you steal, man, the other side of your argument for me? Like, Mm -hmm. okay, I hear you saying that. But who who's the best person on the other side of this argument and what's their version of the argument? If they don't know what the other side is saying, how do they how have they've even tested their views against anything? Right. Yeah. Or or tell me, oh, it seems like you really care about this. Can you tell me how you were conscientious and what process did you go about to get to this data point? Yeah. And lots of times it's a veneer. It just it's like the Wizard of Oz that, you know, the emperor has no clothes. There's some a talking head behind the Wizard of Oz, those kinds of things. You'll find it really quickly because the veneer of how well informed this person is that's trying to trick you into thinking something about vaccines, about one world government, about anything. Right. It's just it falls away so quickly. And you're like, mm, I don't know, man, everything you're sell- telling me sounds kind of lame right now.
0: <laughs> That's right. You know, one interesting idea that you brought up when we were preparing for this episode, I thought was really good is think about consequences. Like, okay, so let's let's imagine that you have some strongly held position. Uh, imagine as if you, that, you know, getting that right or wrong has some sort of immediate substantial consequence for you. How confident are you really in the evidence that you've you've gathered, right? And A lot of times, I think if you do that, if you play that kind of do that, that mental experiment, uh, you will realize that withholding your judgment, collecting some more data, maybe finding some more expertise on the topic, exploring the other side, as you mentioned, might be a better solution in that situation. Yeah. You
1: know, that's why it's the armchair quarterback kind of thing, which all our sports media is based off this. You know, they'll have all the talking. Well, let's talk to Jimbo in Opelika, Alabama. Jimbo, what's going on? Well, you know, that, that coach was really wrong. And it's like, dude, he's a coach and you're not. Right? And we see that. And we know some people maybe have more nuanced views about the games, more expertise. But, you know, if you wanted to put, like, all right, is your life at stake on the answer here? No. You know, people, people don't, it's not going to impact their life if they just tell people what they really think we should do with Iran. Let me mm-hmm. let me tell you about that Geneva Convention now. And it's like, dude, whatever. You just Googled that a minute ago. I, right. You're not an expert on the Geneva Convention. So, you know, be 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 careful when people don't have consequence built in to these decisions. And and so I, after that, you got to have a disciplined thought methodology. And we're going to go into like a risk management framework because you know, risk is hard to assess. But let me give you an example of a discipline thought methodology. That's just real quick. Science changes their mind. So therefore, we should not believe the consensus on science. Now.
0: Scientists, you mean? Yeah, science. Yeah,
1: yeah, scientists. And and well, then how would you decide anything? That's just an excuse to go with what you want anywhere. That's your own brain hijacking you. Right. So when people say, well, science have gotten it wrong before. Like it's, let's say, with the vaccine, which we're unapologetically pro-vaccine on this podcast. Um, well, what, what if scientists got it wrong? OK, well, so how do we know that if science is going to change, you know, and we're going to update our the consensus view is going to change? You'll normally see the opposition unite around one or two things that disprove the consensus. And so, yes, well, the anti-vax people are all over the map all over, hundreds and hundreds of different reasons. So, hey, has the oppositional view consolidated around one or two items that disprove the majority? No. Okay, well, then science and scientists' consensus and all that stuff isn't changing at that point. Oh, they have consolidated around one or two items that disproves the consensus. Okay, now I'm okay to pay attention now. Well, let's take a look at that. Then the thing, if you're not an expert enough to wade in, you're looking for some scientist to defect. Do you see some of the really smart people in the field saying, you know what? I'm on the opposition side now. So, OK, consolidated around one or two arguments that disprove the majority consensus, prominent defections then you're in the realm where science is probably going to change its mind. Scientists, the consensus, the prevailing view is going to change. That's where you saw Galileo, Exoc symbol vice, trying to get doctors to wash their hands. They follow those steps. Ben, can you think of a time that science kind of,
0: the consensus changed its view that didn't follow those kind of steps? Well, I think those are really good examples. You know, I think there's a, in in the world of of medicine there's there are many examples like things that we used to think are were really great that that probably weren't so great you know um and i want to step outside of my area of expertise but you know one problem for example that we have uh in the field of psychology particularly social psychology and and some others is what we call the replication crisis where there are a number of studies that uh they they that were done and you know they they Found that uh, some some astounding result, and um, you know they tried to replicate the experiment or the situation, and the results just didn't pan out, right? Um, And in those instances, that's where science is like, okay, well, I think we need to kind of take a second look here, and we need to um, reevaluate what we thought about that. And people who are staying in touch with the research, what's going on in those types of um, disciplines. Um, are kind of have the wherewithal and the know how to, to 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 distinguish between kind of what's been proven and what has not, or what has been uh, what has more evidence and what does not. I should say. Well, the, when there's a lot of noise,
1: there's a lot less certainty. Right. Right. When a bunch of scientists think a bunch of here's an example that like you know, kicked up a bunch of hullabaloo was was the COVID nineteen designed in a Wuhan you know biotech weapons lab or something like that mm-hmm. and. You know, I, a lot of people said it's unlikely at first. But then, you know, there's there this postdoc that said, well, what about this? And the, and people said, see, the government's trying to cover up what really happened with China or something like that. Well, actually, no, the scientists were just having a conversation. The president just got beefed, briefed on a giant like this is what and guess what? They don't know. right right. we just we don't know we don't have enough information to decide but you could see how people there'd be different experts on that stuff there's handle with care those places where there's not consensus but expert consensus is generally hard
0: Mm one it just
1: doesn't happen
0: magically overnight anymore right right um i mean (laughs) you think about things like different Different innovations, for example, in medicine, I I could say, are, you know, examples of things that we know, we know really, really well that that work well, right? So my brother's an anesthesiologist. Anesthesia is a really, really, really good thing. If you're going into surgery, Uh, this is something 10 out of 10 would recommend (laughs) it for serious surgery. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Um, Would would recommend to a friend. Um, And we figured out ways to do that, uh, right? Safely. You know, when we think about risk, though, I think it's important to have some disciplined thought around it, because most of the risks that we face, or I would say a lot of them are are multifaceted, they're complex. And one way to start to simplify or at least put a little bit of rigor into your thinking is to consider two different facets. One is thinking about the severity of an outcome or of a risk and thinking about the probability. Of that outcome or risk, because you you could have something that maybe has an extremely severe potential outcome, um, and but it, but it's fairly low probability. But it's still something you definitely want to avoid, right? Just because we you know it may be unlikely that you get it in a car accident, still means you wear your seatbelt. Um, but thinking about uh, all of these different facets together, it can be really confusing. One way to simplify it is perhaps to break it down by severity and probability. And there's a lot of really good. Uh, risk management frameworks out there. It can get a lot more complicated than than this, uh, but I think that that is a helpful uh, way to not get tricked for our listeners. Right, and remember, this
1: is you deciding. So first of all, with complex stuff like infectious disease at a pandemic level, you're not gonna be able to assess severity or risk. I've heard people say only 1% of people die. Whoa! Well, I don't think (laughs) that that's much. You know, that shouldn't stop my golf game on Fridays. Right. Or that, you know, well, how do we know that death is the only thing? Maybe there's long COVID, maybe 20 percent lose their smell or something. You know, that's not a true number. I'm just saying as an individual, it's unlikely for complex topics like that, that we're going to be able to accurately, in a good fashion, look at probability or severity in a way that an expert would. So be wary when somebody comes wearing the clothes of an expert, and they say, well, I just don't think it's that bad. Okay, tell me how you analyze the probability and the severity. Mm-hmm. If they're not coming to you with some iteration of probability and severity, I would handle anything they say as very circumspect, because likely they've just made a gut decision, which mm-hmm. is okay in an ER room when somebody's about to die, but not when nobody's shooting at you and you have professional analytical well, tools to look at this stuff.
0: But the gut decision in the ER room is only good if those gut decisions are being made by the ER doctor, right? The person who has seen those exactly, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Yes, you don't want me making those gut decisions. Um, You know, I will if I got to, but uh, you really want someone who has that expertise making those gut decisions. So, So, so if if it's an individual and it's something that only affects them, that's fine. But when you look at healthcare
1: policy, foreign policy, security postures, you know, all of this stuff that goes on out there. Be wary of the expert that doesn't talk about probability and severity and talk about their methodologies for assessing that. You can almost, not always, not always, but almost always just say, listen, man, come back when you got something real for me to look at, because that's not real. And you'll see your neighbors and people on the web do this. Oh, it's just not that bad. Oh, great. Which risk management methodology did you apply to that assessment? Uh, Yeah. So
0: we've been talking a lot here about, you know, social issues or, you know, these different things that we deal with maybe in our in the public forum, perhaps. But I think a lot of these, I'd say all of this applies in the workplace as well. Right. When we are dealing with complex problems, when we're trying to assess risk, when we're trying to, uh, you know, make a decision about something in a realm where there's not a whole lot of information or it's incomplete information, these things still apply. And we would come across frequently, we come across executives or managers, leaders of all levels who have, you know, their folk theories about how things work, about the way the world works, about the way their organization runs, about what makes a good employee or leader within their organization. And, you know, sometimes they're, they're thinking, you know, in a, in a productive way, but a lot of times they're not. It's just based upon some gut intuition that they have, but they aren't in the place to really be making good decisions using your intuition because they don't have that expertise, right? Yeah, until
1: evidence-based leadership and management and all that stuff is the norm, I would be really wary about the norm. This is how you be a big, good leader, right? (laughs) That's like when the financial manager comes and says, I have the secret methodology to building wealth. I don't believe you because you would be living on an island with like all of the gender of your choice and scantily clad clothes, a mansion on the hill and free margaritas at 2 p.m. on Friday. Right. Like you would have <laughs> like, dude, if that was true, why aren't you a trillionaire and why are you talking to a numb like me?
0: <laughs> so another thing, another implication here for uh, people, leaders, and organizations with regard to not being tricked is being aware of some of the logical fallacies out there. So sometimes we've talked about the the straw man, right? The uh, where you're just kind of taking potshots at the weakest form of an argument or sometimes Um, not even their argument,
1: something that looks like their argument, but isn't, you're misrepresenting.
0: Right. I could just totally mischaracterize the entire argument and say, well, that's not true. That's not even what I said. Right. Um, there, there's also, you know, the unfalsifiable types of claims that people have, uh, those can be, you know, ones that, that, that are tricky. And then we can, um, people go down the wrong path with those, um, well, so let's, let's talk about unfalsifiable go for, go first it. It, then. So this is something where I can
1: say something and there's no way for it to be true. Sure. Right? So it's I know climate change is it real. Well, you know, well was there anything that would convince you otherwise? Like, you know, what would what what test or what experiment or what would you need to see to change your mind on climate change? Nothing. I just know it's not true. Any idiot would just know that just walking down the street. You've set yourself up in the land of unfalsifiability. Right. And 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 that's not a good place. So if you can't if reason can't convince you by definition, you're an unreasonable person. Right. So (laughs) when you have a stance personally, I don't think covid vaccines are effective. Okay well, what data would you need to be to what data would you need to see to know they were right? Or here was, here's was one. I just don't trust the public or the CDC. This happened to us when Ben, when we were uh, on a trip and I said, okay, you don't trust the CDC. Well, what would they need to do to earn your trust? And the guy had nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and at that point you're set yourself up. So you're just say, this is just what I believe. I don't have to have any reason for it. It's unfalsifiable. You know, go rot in a ditch somewhere <laughs> it, that you can't. Well, don't the, don't yeah. put yourself in that place. And when somebody comes peddling you something, you say a oh, great question to me, like, well, OK, I, you know, those seem like some pretty compelling arguments. What would you need to see? That would change your mind on that and why? Why would that be the requisite evidence? Mm
0: hmm. Right. You know, another, there, there are so many logical fallacies, by the way, I encourage people to go out there and to read about them and to become familiar with some of these. Um, one in our list here that I I just will touch on is the slippery slope argument. and the slippery slope argument is one that suggests that, Hey, if this happens, then, then something else necessarily will happen, you know, um, to use a, you know, a topic that oftentimes gets talked about like gun control, right? If we require background checks on people, then the next thing is they're going to take away all our guns. Those are not actually causally connected, right? Uh, those are separate types of policy decisions. And, you know, that that's that slippery slope argument is not one that's actually logical. And so uh, you have to be aware of, I guess, you know, when people make those arguments, uh, saying, look, that, that doesn't necessarily follow from what you just said, right? Um, that's not a... a a given consequence of the cause you just stated Um, that that's really it's a subtle one, but it's it's really important. Right. I mean, they
1: play the slippery slope plays on our fears that everything bad is going to happen. Right. Oh, my gosh, I took off that mattress tag that said, don't remove. And now I'm going to be a hardened <laughs> bank robbing criminal.
0: Uh, that, right now, that is true. That is yeah. true.
1: Right. <laughs> but, you know, that these are the things. So when somebody brings up, well, that's going to lead to this, which will lead to this and then communism destruction. And then a meteor is going to come because the meteors hate communism. And then we're all dead. No, <laughs> no, guys. So you call them out on it. Say, you know, that seems like a slippery slope argument. Can you give me definitive evidence other than, well, of course, this is going to happen mm-hmm. and uh, that helps me get there because otherwise or maybe you could just go down a, another form
0: of argument or discourse
1: because slippery know, slope is lame. What,
0: one one phrase that I find helpful if you're encountering these types of arguments with people and be at a slippery slope, one or another is to say, "Ah, oh, that's interesting to hear you say that. It's not obvious to me, though, how this happens, right? Or just using that phrase, it's not obvious to me. That can be a a really good way to try to suss out what someone is actually trying to say. And oftentimes, it it kind of helps you not get tricked, Um, you know, because you'll get to see the underlying reasons for how they're thinking what they're thinking. Right. And
1: so, you know, two more, and I'll do the appeal to authority really fast. But appeal to authority is, well, Ben Barron said it or this scientist said it, right? That's mm-hmm. an expert, but this scientist said it. Listen, something's true. Not because somebody said it's true. I don't care who that person is on this planet. I don't care what, how much expertise. Something's true, not because that person said it, but because the preponderance of evidence shows it to be true. So if you're some big hoodoo expert up there, man, I mean, I think it's probably likely because you're a super big expert. But, all right, Mr. Expert Dude, how about the evidence now? Right. They still, right. They, they don't, it's not true just because somebody said it was true. Now, another one, and this one's all the time, it's an appeal to ignorance. Here's some examples. No one has ever been able to prove definitively that extraterrestrials exist, so they may not be real. Nobody's been able to prove absolutely that kids will dive. Pass a certain amount from COVID vaccine. You know, like you, you could just go through nobody. Well, they don't know for sure. Science doesn't know anything for sure. Well, okay, well, no, then how do we make decisions, you numbskull? All right, mm-hmm. so no one has ever been able to prove definitively that extraterrestrials exist, so they must not be real. Well, look at the flip side of that. No one has ever been able to prove definitively that extraterrestrials do not exist, so they must be real. <laughs> so right, it's a, the only thing that an appeal to ignorance. Well, nobody really knows, and you'll hear that all the time. All that proves is that your own ignorance to what is known and not known at that time. Sure,
0: sure. You know, so there's a, a some great research that we've been touching on a little bit here in the episode, and we'll talk a little bit more about some of this here in a minute, but. Um, I just want to, again, point out our show notes. We've got some great articles on risk perception. There's this great article that was written in Risk Analysis, um, published here actually last year, or 2020, depending on when you're listening to this. Um, and then there's this really interesting idea and um, uh, basically a questionnaire, a type of quiz uh, to assess something called scientific reasoning. And this is a, a an interesting um, type of, of scale, as we call it in psychometrics. Um, it was published in the Journal of Behavioral Decision Making in 2017. And what these researchers did is they they went through the process, and I won't go through all of the different ways that you do this, but they developed a scale, a basically a questionnaire, to help assess someone's uh, scientific reasoning. And we'll post a link to this in the show notes, of course. But what's really cool in this is they came up with these different test items to look at different concepts, right? And I think these concepts are ones that could be really helpful for a lot of people to you know, understand what is and what is not perhaps stinking thinking to have better critical thinking about information and be able to decide you know, perhaps what's misinformation or disinformation a little bit better and end up not getting tricked as much. So for example, looking at things like causality, you know, how do you actually link something causally to another? How do you know? Big that, words. <laughs>
1: how,
0: how do we know that this made that happen? There you go, right? How do we know that this made that happen? Um, well, there's a couple ways. One is like the the this needs to occur before the that, right? There has to be time precedence for something to, to be causally linked. Um, you know, you also have to have, well, it, at least from a, a research perspective, you, you would want to have a random assignment to different groups to, to try to determine that. Um, another big one, though, that I think people should keep in mind is that there are no alt- omitted variables, no alternative explanations, you know? So correlation, two things being associated, does not mean that they are causally related. I'll give you an example. So it, th- my favorite example, one that's used probably in every, like, stats or psych 101 class out there is you know there is a relationship between ice cream sales and drowning right ice cream sales and drowning um now of course it's absurd to say to think that yeah two kids (laughs)
1: drowned this week our sales are going to be through the roof
0: yeah yeah you can't say that and you also can't say you know that um eating ice cream is going to make you drown right What's the omitted variable? Well, it's high temperatures that cause people to be more likely to be out swimming and to uh, be eating ice cream. So those, that omitted variable is actually the driver of those two different um, outcomes. Um, so I encourage our listeners to take a look at this. I think having some basic ideas around scientific reasoning can help you navigate this landscape that we've talked about so much in this episode. Right, because
1: what we want is we want our listeners and people that aren't sure about these techniques, we want you to have an easy way to access them. So you need to go like you should print out logical fallacy. There's whole lists on the web about them and just read a couple of them. They'll help you use some of the tips that we said, like how do we know science is about or scientists are about to change their mind, right? You know, use these things because we want you to walk out the door at the beginning of every day. And be confident in how you're navigating the misinformation and disinformation and good information landscape. So you can be like, hey, it's no problem. Ben and I don't struggle. It takes time, right? So sometimes something confusing comes around and we're like, "Ugh." well, if I want to get to the bottom of it, I'm going to have to do the time for the crime here and do the research, find out what consensus, all those kinds of pieces. But at least, you know, the
0: steps you got to do. Yeah. Right. You know, one other piece that I want to share here as we start to bring this into a close is, you know, let's imagine you're a leader and be it in the public forum, you're an elected official, you're a, a public health person, maybe you're working, uh, you know, in the government or you're working in your organization. You're trying to lead a team, lead the whole organization, whatever the case may be. And you know that you're going to have to present a, a position or some sort of information. Um, that that people are going to off, you know have some sort of contrary opinion to and it maybe is somewhat controversial. Well, there's a technique that you can use that's called pre-bunking that can be helpful for you. We'll post a link to this in the show notes, but this idea of pre-bunking um, has been demonstrated in psychological research to help with uh, with the acceptance of information so um, the idea here is that instead of waiting for false information, you know, think of rumors, think of just things that are flat out wrong to spread around and then kind of coming back and doing the fact checking and debunking it, um, you use a preemptive strike. And what this preemptive strike can help you do is potentially shield people's brains from getting the misinformation lodged in there in the first place, right? So this is where you would uh, present you know, some of the information up front about the objections. You would um, you would share some of that right up front so that people have the ideas in their minds and then they can uh, they, and then you, you steal, man, you present what um, you know your position is, and that can really help uh, people to 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 not be tricked. Yeah. The, but the
1: challenge with pre-bunking is it's relying on our jalopy brains that it just accept what they hear first. Right. So disinformation, people will sometimes put out and pre-bunk, right? (laughs) They're pre-bunking the truth that they know is going to come. Yes, some of the Illuminati don't want you to know this. And you're right, they go out, they're putting garbage out, and they're pre-bunking good stuff that might come against it with erroneous stuff. So, yes, it's helpful. Pre-bunk good stuff that's out there. Know that it's only being accepted by people because they tend to believe the information they hear first, and if it's easy to hear or listen to, right? Or read. Also have the detailed arguments to follow up. So if somebody's coming to you, even with pre-bunk stuff, just say, Hey, am I just accepting this? Cause this was the first thing I've heard. You got you because you play the biggest role in your own deception. So that means do the work on what the information that's coming to you and use the tips that we've talked about. But the key thing is don't just trust your feelings. Don't just trust your first instinct or the first thing you hear. Go through this process. Nobody's shooting at you. You've got some time.
0: That's right. That's right. You know, I think a big takeaway, a big implication for all of our listeners out there with regard to how not to be tricked is that you've got to slow down. Don't necessarily trust your instincts right away and be very mindful of some of these ways in which we oftentimes can fail and be tricked, right? The the ideas of uh, risk perception and some of the ways in which, you know, if we're trying to, if we have a lot of time pressure, for example, we're oftentimes not going to be able to make good decisions. So all of these things taken together can help you make better decisions, and all of that can help make our world a better place. Don't you think, Chris? I mean, I hope so. We
1: just spent an hour, 20 (laughs) minutes talking about it.
0: (laughs) That's right. So we've talked about the disinformation and misinformation landscape, some common practices and uh, things that will trick people as long as some implications for people, leaders and organizations here on this episode of the Indigo Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.